Well, I absolutely love this particular Sunday. In all the Sundays of the year, this one is one that absolutely captivates my mind because it's the Sunday that follows Christmas and the Sunday that precedes the new year. So it's that one Sunday when it's perfect to invite a guest preacher to your pulpit. <laughs> no, absolutely, I love this. In fact, it is a joy to be with you. Uh, as you know, my brother John, he brags about you so much, and seeing you in person and just the small taste of fellowship in our time here, uh, he is not exaggerated in the least. It is a joy to get to see your faces and to hear about the ministry here. Your pastor is an exemplary leader, and we're grateful for his influence, and we're absolutely thrilled to get to see the ministry in action. As your pastor said, we come from Louisville, Kentucky, and some of you hear that like you did the words of those who spoke about Jesus and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, many great things come out of Kentucky. Right now, on the campus of Southern Seminary is the largest number of pastors in training that have ever been gathered together in one place at one time in the history of Christianity. That's significant, to know that there are thousands of young men preparing their hearts going through the meticulous work that it takes to be ready for a lifetime of faithful ministry, knowing that God's going to take them into the line of fire to proclaim his gospel. And we get to be a very small part of what God takes, uh, what God is doing there. Well, if you have your Bible, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 17 down through verses 21. As I said a minute ago, this particular Sunday and this week is really one where people do tend to reflect and you prepare what you might call your New Year's resolutions, correct? You think through the different ideas you want to strengthen in your life in this next year from joining the gym to starting the diet to stopping certain activities or saving more money or buying the new product, whatever it is, and all those goals and pastors do the same thing. Pastors often set those kind of goals as well. Of what kind of ministries can we start and what would be the priorities that we'd want to have in this new year? One pastor from long ago heard that many people in his congregation had the New Year's resolution to attend church more faithfully. And so this pastor held what he called a no-excuse Sunday. Have you heard this? He said this, Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say, Sunday is my only day to sleep in. There will be special sections with lounge chairs for those who feel that our pews are too hard. Eye drops will be available for those with tired eyes from watching TV late on Saturday night. We'll have steel helmets for those who say, the roof could cave in if I ever came to church. Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold, and fans will be there for those who think it's too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites present. Relatives and friends will be in attendance for those who can't come to church because, and be with others at the same time. Meals will be prepared and ready to pass out for those who have to cook dinner. We'll distribute stamp out stewardship buttons for those who feel that church is always asking for money. And one section will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to seek God in nature. <laughs> Doctors and nurses will be in attendance for those who plan to be sick on Sunday. And the sanctuary will be decorated, de decorated for both Christmas with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen the church without them. <laughs> and last, we'll provide hearing aids for those who can't hear the preacher and cotton for those who say he's too loud. <laughs> yes, there are all kinds of ways to try to help people with their New Year's resolutions. But what I want to take us into this morning is something that the Apostle Paul presents as really the only priority for a Christian's life. 
there's really only one resolution that we need to have. There's only really one objective that we need to embrace as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's summed up in the one word, ambassador. The one word, ambassador. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, sir, nurse, Chief, captain, admiral, senator, judge. You have titles in life because of your role in a family, mom, dad, aunt, uncle. Titles because of nobility, prince, king, queen. But as members of God's family, we also have titles. Unlike the world's titles, these are titles given to us by God, not ones that we are earning based on what we have done. The title we're born with is enemy. The title God gives us is son or daughter. The title we're born with is sinner. The title that God gives us is saint. The title we're born with is one who is a slave of sin. The title God gives us is friend. The moment we move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we have a new inheritance. We have a new family. We have a new identity. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls us ambassadors. But before we can look at that word, we've got to get the background, and that's really what the whole passage is about, is he introduces to us in verse 17 a new creation, something that God makes in us that makes us new. At the point of salvation, Paul says, you are a new creation. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Something changes, not like a job title that shifts or you move to a new location and therefore you have a new background or a new place you're from. This is a disassembling or dismantling of the old and a creating of something entirely new. He says old things and I always think it's fascinating when scripture refers to our old self because we know in Christ the old self is gone but every once in a while God reminds us intentionally that what you are is not always what you are. You weren't always who you are right now. You used to be something else. And once in a while, in a general way, God says, remember what you used to be. And he reminds us of that. The old you, the things that made you recognizable according to the flesh, as the previous verse, verse 16 says. The old habits, priorities, ambitions, desires, the sin you loved, the righteousness you hated. Back when life was hopeless and fearful before you knew the love of Christ, when our hearts were only craving after sin? As Isaiah 53, 6 says that we're like sheep that have gone astray, each one pursuing his own way. Scripture periodically points to the BC days, the before Christ days, the days when we had no hope in him and no forgiveness. Not to shame us, but to remind us that that's not who we are. We're in a room full of people right now who each one of us have a sinful background. Each one of us have the scar tissue of depravity that has in the past saturated our life. 
devastating us. God's word brings up our past only to say this, it's over, it's gone. When Jesus hung on the cross, paying the wages of our sin, his final words that he cried out were, it is finished, to telestai, it's done. You say, what's finished? The work of Christ on earth is complete. The payment for sin has been made. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The guilt of our sin has been forgiven. The old things have passed away. It's the most wonderful statement in verse 17 where he says these things have passed away, that we're no longer in bondage to it. Christ's death on the cross shattered sin's power. As a Christian, sin no longer has command over us. Do you realize that? Sin no longer has mastery over us, that as a follower of Jesus, he gives us supernatural victory over sin. A dear friend of mine one day realized that he had no desire to leave sin behind, no victory over it, nothing conquered, no trail that he could look back at and say, those are the sins that God has mortified in my past life. And it was in that moment that he realized he was not saved because no matter how much human effort he exerted, there was no supernatural power to conquer sin. God used that moment to save that man. And he began to see the work of God in his heart to leave sin behind. That same story is true of many here today who it's not until you repent of sin that you then begin to see the power of God at work. Oh, sure, as believers, we still sin, but its power, its mastery, its command is dismantled. It's shattered, and we are free. The scars and the consequences are there, but as Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no what? Condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. God brings up our past only to remind us for a split second that it's over. That's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter five. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience. And among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying, we all have a past we all have been entrenched in sin. We all have been defiled. But Ephesians 5, verse 4, Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We're made times. We have a new hatred, second. A new hatred, we hate the sin of this world and we hate it for the reason that God hates it. We're running from sin, impounding his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Our love is for him is so great and as that love grows, our hatred for the sin that violates his holiness grows as well. Not only do we have a new heart, a new hatred, but we also have a new hope, a new hope, a hope of eternity that our treasure is in heaven. Our affections reside with my citizenship, that I am a citizen of heaven and my affections are there. My hope is there. To be in Christ, as Paul says in 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 means that I'm secure, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. It means that I'm protected, that there's no slander, no accusation, no assault that can derail God's love. It means I'm sustained. 24-7, supernatural power flowing through us because of God's love, his mercy, and his grace. All this happens, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, at salvation, when we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. There is so much hope to that, isn't there? So much hope that we gain because our life is hidden with him. It's a comfort because we have a new identity. And as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, as we read earlier, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise, you understand that? And it's a promise that works, as one preacher said, both forward and backwards. You leave or you forsake, never will I. God makes that promise to us. There's hope and comfort in this new identity. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Romans 8, 38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are just a few of the things that go with our new identity. The power of God that flows through us because we are made new. And when that new identity takes place in the heart, there is then the outward manifestation of it that the world sees. That's what Christ says in Matthew 5, 16, that as salt and light, the world will see our good works. They will recognize that there's a difference in us. What Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 as our new identity then gives way to a new ministry. A new ministry takes over now in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19. It says this, Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Four times in these two verses alone, Paul uses the word reconciled. It brings up an enormous responsibility that God gives to us because it's something God has done to us. When you use the word reconciled, you're showing that there's two sides against each other. On one side, we have sinful humanity, as Romans 3 describes, saturated in rebellion, hating holiness, entrenched in sin, loving evil, and readily approving others who do the same. And on the other side stands our holy God, righteous, pure, innocent, undefiled, protective of his holiness, the judge over sin who demands that his law and any who violate it must be punished the two opposite sides face each other with war between them and no hope except for God takes action God reconciles us God moves it says verse 18 
that all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. It's God who takes action. It's God who sees us in our hopelessness. It's God who sees us being under the weight of his own. Glance down to verse 21. Skip over verse 19, 20 for the moment. Verse 21 gives us this message that the person who has a new identity and a new ministry must deliver. Verse 21. It says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ is the one who became sin for us. Jesus Christ, as the verse says, is the one who knew no sin, absolutely holy and pure, and yet as our Messiah became the payment for sin, our deliverer, our redeemer, our substitution. It was Christ who was rejected, betrayed, abandoned, denied, condemned, spit on, falsely accused, falsely convicted, crucified, mocked, pierced, and forsaken for us. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's Christ, the text says, who became sin. It's God who made him our sin. And we became his righteousness. Another verse brings this out even more clearly. If you mark down Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. But verse 14 of Colossians chapter 2 puts it in vivid terms. It says that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Now, anyone in the room with a credit card knows what that means because every month you get a certificate of debt. It's that statement that shows up itemizing everything you owe, correct? Once in a while it might be off a little bit because there's human error involved and that's possible. But it's a pretty accurate reflection of where your heart's been because that's where we put our finances. And it comes with this itemized certificate of debt. And the Apostle Paul says, we all have a certificate of debt. It's a certificate that perfectly, without exaggeration or without omission, itemizes every single sin we have committed. Every single sin. In fact, the text goes a little further in Colossians 2.14. It says it consists of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. This certificate of debt not only says you owe something, but it goes past the point of owing. It's hostile to you, meaning doing damage. It wants your soul eternally in hell. This certificate of debt hangs over all of us. But the wording that Paul uses in Colossians 2 is so incredible. It says that this certificate of debt has been taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What he's saying is he's personifying the certificate of debt in the person of Christ and saying the certificate of debt is Jesus Christ. He's taken it upon himself and God nailed it to the cross. That's how it was taken out of the way. 
That's how it was removed. That's how what we owe has been satisfied to God because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. Romans 5, 6, that while we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us when we don't care about him. It's Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin, to be the certificate of debt, to be my sin, that I would then have his righteousness. And when God looks at me, when God looks at you as a follower of Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ because Christ paid the penalty for our sin and it's done. That's why, as I said earlier from Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the gospel that's in Christ. The power that takes those who hated Christ and transforms us into those who now hate sin. It's the power of Christ that takes those who used to love our sin and transforms us into those who love Christ. It's the power of the gospel that takes the most vile sinner and transforms us into pure and holy children of God. Only Christ came off the cross. The certificate of debt is gone. And now there's no authority over us, though we relentlessly fight it day to day, it has no power over us. This is how Jesus builds his church, right? I mean, the common denominator in this room is not a mutual affection for this address or zip code. The common denominator in this room is Jesus Christ, who Christ transformed a former blasphemer into being a son of God. He's our savior. He's the one who has done this for us. And why what Christ did for us is now what we get to help do for others. Look back at what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, he reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's now given that commission to us. Our new ministry is one of reconciling people who hated God to the God who sent his son to earth to die for them. That's our role. It was verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18. We've got the word of reconciliation, verse 19. That's both the commission and the content of it. We have the responsibility and we have the vocabulary. We have everything we need to bring people to God and to bring before God different people. That's what we see Jesus doing throughout his whole ministry on earth. You remember the woman at the well. Here he is reconciling a woman that the world would despise to God. You think of the woman caught in adultery, the rich young ruler who God confronted, Christ confronted, and though he did not repent, it was Christ's effort to reconcile him. You think of Zacchaeus, the man born blind, the lame man, the beggar, the woman with the hemorrhage. Over and over again, it's Jesus Christ reconciling people to God, bringing to them the knowledge they must have to repent, calling them to repent, and at the same time pleading with the Father to continue to do his work. We see people throughout Scripture doing this. Aquila and Priscilla, Timothy, Martha and Mary, the different disciples. We see Paul doing this over and over again, 
reconciling people to God. And with a new identity, with a new ministry, and with the message that we see in verse 21, we then look at verse 20, where Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is a powerful word picture here. Being ambassador is a tough job. Maybe some of you have been in this role in different ways. It's a tough job because you have no personal authority. You have no personal power and you have no personal message. Your opinion doesn't matter. You exist solely to communicate the message given to you by the one who you serve. In Roman times, this role perhaps had a little bit more power than it does today, but nonetheless, it was a role of bold service. An ambassador had to learn a different culture, had to learn a different vocabulary, had to learn different customs and language, how to live in a society. Ambassadors do not have an opinion or an option in the message that they are given to deliver. In fact, they are told what to say and must deliver that message with the power they are delegated and the authority as well. It's not just the content, it's the tone with which it's delivered. They must speak boldly, faithfully, accurately, and exactly what they are given to say. Everywhere you go and in every conversation in which you engage, every relationship in which you find yourself, every location, every single moment that you are alive, you have the same responsibility to be an ambassador. When Paul uses this word, he's reminding us that that is our role on this earth, that we never cease to be an ambassador. It's only a question of how diligent are you or how delinquent are you. It's only a question of how much you reflect the authority and the power and the message that Christ has given to us or how you avoid it. An ambassador for a given country has to stand and give the message that the one who sent him has entrusted him to give. We represent a king that the world hated, attacked, and then executed. We represent a kingdom that's not of this world and cannot be obtained by anything in this world. We carry a message that the world looks on with disgust and will mock and reject. And we know that from the outset. But we have a risen king who saved us, who transformed us and called us into his service. And we, as Paul says in verse 20 here, we beg others on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Don't miss that word beg. Verse 20 says, we're ambassadors as though God were making an appeal through us. He's saying, as God is giving us this responsibility, you need to hear the words that I'm saying. Paul's saying as he speaks, I don't need you. You need me, but I don't need you. And you beg and you beg and you beg and you, you whine away hoping I'm going to act on something. We have a view of this word that it, it's more attached to annoying than we do to petitioning. What Paul is saying here is we beg you. There's a passion, there's a plea, there's a persistency, there's a faithfulness, there's a diligence, there's a boldness, there's a tenacity to that kind of begging. As your pastor said, I've had the privilege to serve as a chaplain, particularly in one hospital for a while. And I remember being in the emergency room one day when a man had uh, traveled on vacation with his wife and glanced over, thought she was sleeping and didn't realize she was passing away. 
and he brought his truck flying in the back of the hospital to the emergency room and brings her in and she's on the table and the doctors did everything they could do to save her life and it was of no effect and she passed away. And I remember standing there with this man with all of his might beating the table, begging God, just give me one more minute with her. And tears rolling down his face and screaming out loud, pleading for just one more breath of air to see her face one more time. In that moment, I remembered this verse because I thought, you know what? He's begging for her life with a passion that I don't beg for other people's salvation for. And how often we passionately plead for physical life while spiritual life just walks right on by us. You see, Paul did not try to live as a sheep in wolves' clothing disguising himself as an unbeliever and then one day saying, surprise, I'm actually a Christian. You didn't see that coming, did you? He lived as an ambassador for Christ so that everyone would know. His goal was not to win your friendship and then lead you to Christ. His goal is to lead you to Christ and then be your brother. Because now we have the same father. We have the same spiritual family. We have the same forgiveness of sin, the same hope. See, what's often happens is as Christians were satisfied and content and grateful and humbled to be in the kingdom and that's where it stops as if that was the goal. But Paul is saying the goal is that you're saved so that you can open your mouth and present the gospel to somebody who's going to hate what you have to say in the moment but you prick their conscience and watch what the Holy Spirit does as he drills away on their soul and ruins everything in their life until they're humbled just like you had to be and you see them come to faith in Christ. That's the force of this word ambassador. It's not a passive identity. It's an active engagement. Nothing about this work is silent and nothing about it is safe. Nothing about it makes us exempt from the anger of the world. But the anger of the world pairs in comparison to the hell that others will experience. Paul would say this earlier in 1 Corinthians Chapter one, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He said, of course it's gonna be foolishness to them. It was foolishness to you. Don't think that they think it anything more foolish than you thought it was before you were saved. But God humbled you, he can humble them. Paul's goal was to make it known that he was there to represent Christ. He was there to beg for their salvation. This was his heart. This was his desire. This was his hunger. One author said that what made Paul effective was not marketing savvy, but a stubborn devotion to the truth. He was Christ's ambassador, not his press secretary. Truth was something to be declared, not negotiated. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He willingly suffered for the sake of truth. He did not back down in the face of opposition or rejection. He did not compromise with unbelievers or make friends with the enemies of God. Our message does not change. Our role is to simply have this new identity with a new ministry, with a new message in our mouth, and to operate as an ambassador for Christ.
This is all we have. The question, as I said earlier, is are you a delinquent ambassador? Are you doing damage to the name of Christ? Or are you a diligent ambassador? Scripture is filled with examples of faithful ambassadors. James and John, the sons of thunder, who boldly opened their mouth, not fearing what would happen. Paul, who prayed diligently that God would open a door for the gospel, never once considering what would happen when he went through that door. Because he knew full well that they killed Christ, why would we expect anything less? Mary and Martha opened their hearts and their homes and their resources to serve Christ. Romans 16, verse 4, talks about Priscilla and Aquila who risked even their own necks for the gospel. This is the heart of an ambassador who moves not to a safe place, but to a dangerous place. An ambassador in a foreign land where every one of its inhabitants is at war with the one who sent you. But yet we live faithfully. C.T. Studd, born in 1860, died in 1831, started his known career as a cricket player. That doesn't mean much in North America. We're not big cricket fans. Some of you may be. But he was saved in his teenage years. His father passed away and left him a considerable amount of wealth. He quickly divided that wealth into four categories, gave a portion of it to D.L. Moody to start Moody Bible College. He gave another portion of it to George Mueller, another portion of it to Hudson Taylor, and the last portion to the girl he wanted to marry. And she knew his heart for missions, so she turned around and gave it away. So they got married dead broke and set out into a lifetime of faithful ministry. C.T. Studd was one who knew his life was to be an ambassador for Christ and he consistently moved to the darkest portions of the earth to present the gospel to others who had never otherwise would hear it. There's a young man named Jerome Moody who was swimming in a swimming pool at a hotel. And around him in this hotel was a celebration of lifeguards who had worked an entire season without anyone drowning in their area. And they were brought together to celebrate this fact. Over 100 there, four on duty at the pool, and no one noticed Jerome Moody drown in the middle of it all. I tell you this because while we live ambassadors, as ambassadors for Christ, our eyes are often outside on people who don't even want to be in this room right now. But part of being an ambassador for Christ is to faithfully Proclaim Christ even to the people in this room, lest there be somebody here who might drown in the middle of a lifeguard gathering. See how quickly that happens? Drowning doesn't make any noise. Drowning is the person who's sinking in hopelessness. They have a smile on their face, pressed up by the force of everyone around them, but they're drowning in hopelessness. They're drowning in guilt because they desperately want to know the freedom of forgiveness that you have, but they don't have it. Being an ambassador for Christ means that we look both internal and external. We look around us, we look near us, and we're constantly proclaiming the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, never knowing what God will do with that message. What Paul tells us in this passage is that you are an ambassador to beg people to reconcile to God with a supernatural message that he transforms us with and he will transform others as well. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness to give us your word, to not only explain to us the hope that we have in Christ and to save us, 
But as your word says, you go before us to prepare a home. But you leave us here so that we might boldly proclaim your message to everyone we meet. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that as you've surrounded them, each with a group of unbelievers that none of the rest of us may ever know, that you would give them courage that even today they'll take the first step to tell someone else about you. That you would remind us daily of our role as ambassadors. That that thought would never leave our mind. It'd be stamped and etched there. That with every conversation, every action, we'd be reminded that we represent you and your supernatural power and your supernatural message that you have created because of your son's work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Your spirit's present in our life. Lord, you've given us the words to say and the people to whom we must say it. May we do it faithfully until we see you face to face. In your name, amen.